But I think fiction in general, this isn't really even about King or about the genre. Um, fiction in general, it just it it um, especially for ministry leaders who don't often read, you know, their lay people, you know, their congregants read fiction more than they do typically. But a lot of Christians don't read fiction um, anyway. But ministry leaders in particular, it works different parts of your brain. Yeah, I think it can make you a better preacher. Yes, because you begin to, without even knowing, you're being shaped in this in the form of narrative, mm. the way story is. So your illustrations get better. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Those of you who know me, well, you may uh, remember from talking to me from time to time that I love fiction. I'm a bit uh, sad to say this in one sense, because as I interact with other theologians and sometimes even other Christians, uh, I've noticed that there, whenever I mention fiction, things go strangely quiet, <laughs> and uh, I, I get weird looks at times. You're a theologian, you care about theology, and you are just as serious about reading fiction. Hmm, that sounds a bit contradictory or odd at times, but uh, those of you who have talked to me know that uh, I'm actually a very big advocate, though I'm not the only one. There's there's a few others out there, I think, but I'm a big advocate of connecting uh, our world of theology to the world of fiction because I believe in fiction. Uh, I actually believe, to quote uh, a line from Stephen King, that there is a truth embedded in the lie itself. Fiction is one of those marvelous genres of writing that allows us to use the imagination that God has given us in a way that can capture deep truths about reality itself and at times perhaps even reality beyond what we experience. This is one of the reasons why I love a writer like Stephen King. Now, I know even saying that uh, this is really going to uh, makes some of our listeners nervous. Uh, Stephen King, out of all fiction writers, um, of course, Stephen King, um, by my own admission, is is someone who uh, certainly can at times uh, really strike against uh, some of our our even theological and ethical senses in terms of you know the way language is used, maybe in a more crude way. And so I am uh, more than willing to concede that. And at the same time, as we uh, as Christians should be interacting and engaging the ideas and, and thoughts of all different types of non-Christians, I think Stephen King's writing is uh, out of out of so much, I think it is actually one of the most fruitful to engage. Now, why would I say that? Because, well, I think that King actually has a very deep sense of not just reality and, and some of the darkness and despair of the world that we live in, which I think we need to come to grips with, but he also has a very deep understanding of something that transcends this world, something supernatural. 
and it comes out in almost every single one of his books. And it comes out especially as King himself brings you as a reader closer and closer, both with your own destination, death and suffering and evil in this world, and that puzzling question, could there be hope? Could there be something beyond this world that actually enters into our reality and makes us think about who we are on a level that goes beyond so much of the superficiality that we typically see around us? Now, there's another reason why mentioning Stephen King might also shock some of our listeners, and that is because Stephen King is, well, famous, but maybe in the eyes of some infamous for horror fiction. Now, I realize that some Christians may be a bit uh, nervous or suspicious or perhaps even hostile to this genre. And yet again, I find myself so drawn to it because horror fiction uh, tends to bring us to uh, really stare at ourselves and ask ourselves, what are we actually afraid of in life most of all? And by answering that question, we have to deal with actually very biblical and theological concepts and realities such as sin in the world or evil or the way that we as human persons uh, need redemption ourselves. Well, all of these themes come up in horror fiction. And believe it or not, uh, Stephen King is the master of bringing these themes to the surface, sometimes in the most uncomfortable ways uh, we can imagine. Now, as I was thinking about, could we actually do a podcast? Is it even possible to do a podcast, uh, a theology podcast for that matter, on something like horror fiction or on Stephen King himself and the promise uh, that he gives to thinking, uh, using the imagination in these types of ways that we I've just been mentioning? Well, I looked around looked at the landscape, and I thought, who could possibly come on this podcast? And the first person I thought of, given so many of my conversations with him, is, of course, Jared Wilson, who I am just pleased to say is not just my colleague here at Midwestern Seminary, but he's right here in the studio with me in the flesh. And uh, many of you, of course, know Jared. Uh, you, you may be familiar with his writings or perhaps you've been on campus before. He is assistant professor of pastoral ministry here, and he's also an author in residence. And you may be familiar with Jared because he's the general editor of uh, For the Church, which has been so influential. But I can't help but mention some of Jared's books uh, because, uh, well, uh, Jared, if, if I haven't said this to you already, uh, I am a fan. <laughs> Oh, all righty. <laughs> um, you, you may know, our listeners no, no doubt know uh, many, many of his books. Um, one of his recent books is called Love Me Anyway. Uh, but he's also written, which is one of the reasons I wanted him most of all to come on uh, this podcast. He's also written fiction. Uh, one, of, one of his earlier books that he wrote was called Other World, and it has a Stephen King-ish uh, dimension <laughs> to it. It does. And uh, I, I can't help but mention also one of his most recent works in, in, this, uh, in fiction, which is Echo Island. Um, I actually have two copies of it, and oh, wow. uh, my, my own daughter, uh, she has been reading through it and enjoying it. Oh, good. Couldn't put it down. And was just enthralled with the whole storyline and and so much of the creativity uh, that's that that oh, that's she awesome. 
just loved reading um, as as a want to be young rising uh, <laughs> fiction writer herself, Jared. That's a long introduction, but thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Yeah, thank you, brother. I'm I'm excited about it. when you when you told me you had an idea for this episode of Stephen <laughs> King. My first thought was, how's that? How's he going to pull this off? <laughs> but <laughs> my second thought was, that sounds like a blast. Yeah, I can't wait yeah. to do it. Let's tank your your whole podcast together. <laughs> hey, if we're going to go down in flames, we're going to go down <laughs> together. So I figured, you know, if I just come on here and talk about Stephen King, yeah, it's, I'm probably going to go up in flames. But <laughs> if Jared Wilson does, uh, oh. there's got to be some credibility here. I mean, we they have to at Is least that... hear us out. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm the credibility. That's a new one. All right. Oh. Now, I think the first question I want to ask you, because um, let's be honest, there's going to be listeners who who love theology, but they're going to hear the mere mention of, you know, horror fiction or Stephen King in particular and think, why in the world would anyone, especially a Christian, uh, even open a book by Stephen King, which at times, you know, they're going to notice, oh, it can be crude and, and, uh, but Jared, I from judging from our conversations together, I was really pleasantly surprised to learn um, you too read a lot of Stephen King. I, I I'm not do. the only one. Yeah. So what? What? Uh, let, let me ask you this: What? How did you first start reading Stephen King? I mean, there's so much fiction out there, and so yeah. many brilliant fiction writers. Why King? Yeah. So the first uh, King book I read was in junior high school. Um, it was Cujo. Okay. which is about the <laughs> rabbit dog, uh, the dog that goes nuts. with. Uh, I, I think it's rabies. A bat bites the dog. The dog goes crazy, starts killing everybody, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I would not recommend this book for the, the junior high level age, okay. not because of the Cujo stuff, but there's some other things in the book that mm. I, I did not expect to be in there. Yeah. I, I, I started reading the book because, um, you know, growing up in the 80s, Stephen King is just this towering figure over pop culture. Uh, a lot of movies are being made at that time um, that are King movies. I was not allowed to see yeah. these movies because my parents were were good parents. Uh, but their awareness of content didn't often extend to literature. Mm. And so I could go into the public library and probably against my parents' wishes and against my better judgment <laughs> as a junior high kid go, that's the book I'm going to read. And I thought I can I can read King stuff. So it was not a, a, yeah. a virtuous yeah. uh, endeavor. But I, I got I got hooked. And, um, uh, you, know, his, you know, from his storytelling in particular yeah. and became a very avid reader of King, uh, um, you know, from then on. It, it's been a while when you ask. So, you know, I, I haven't read probably, you know, the, you know, all the books that he's written in the last 10 or 15 years. I kind of fell out of reading him very avidly. But here and there, I, I, I'll think, oh, that story sounds interesting. Mm. But there was a period from high school through probably my, my um you know, late twenties, early thirties, yeah. where I was reading everything that he yeah. had, you know, written at the time. Cage stage. Stephen I was a King. cage stage. That's right. <laughs> I'm out of the cage stage now. I'm more selective <laughs> about it. But there was just something about the storytelling. So first it was kind of the forbidden fruit. It, yeah. it wasn't a virtuous yeah. kind of but like, oh, I can read the book. I can't see the movies, but I can read this book. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so that was kind of what drew me in first. But he's just such a captivating yeah. storyteller. One of the best. His characterization is is uh, um, feels on the most part. I, yeah. Maybe we could talk about this later, but there are there are times where his characters don't feel authentic. But by and large, he's very good at characterization. Yep. One thing I had never discovered is in some of those early books, he's putting you in the in the thought life of the characters, which is not a thing that I was used to reading. 
italicized words so you know that's essentially the inner dialogue of characters mm -hmm. uh which in the some writers toolbox is kind of a lazy kind of writing but in his it isn't because he, he's he's really showing you sort of uh the fear and the articulation of fear and the articulate you know that was new to me so i you know i was picking up even you know tools for my own sort of pursuit of writing as well and yeah. the way to conceive of stories and things you know this i want to get to stephen king okay and i want to I want us to just talk about some of his novels that have influenced you and made you think about everything from the problem of evil to the existence of the supernatural and so on. But maybe we, before we even get there, we need to, to stop and just talk about writing itself. Yeah. Because uh, most people may not know this, but um, I mean, he's on the one hand, Stephen King is prolific when it comes to horror fiction, but he also has written. A, a very serious and uh, I think I'm right in saying a very well uh, respected book called On Writing. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like if I'm hearing, you know, hearing what you're saying here, um, this in some ways, this forbidden, you know, maybe even accidental, you know, stumbling uh, uh, upon Stephen King, in some ways it starts because he's such a master storyteller. And I agree with you. I think the way that um, he lets you inside the character's mind is something that's extremely hard to do as a writer. But uh, what I'm picking up on is it's not just uh, the themes, but it's the writing itself. Um, is there a sense in which as you're reading Stephen King, you're also learning how to tell a story. You're also learning how to write. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he has a, he has a voice. The best writing, the best storytelling ha has a voice. And by, you know, how would we characterize his voice? It is, it's undeniably him. It feels almost like, um, you know, late middle age or, um, well, now older, but in the prime of when I'm reading him, he's a baby boomer, ex hippie, uh, anti established. Yep. He has a, there's a, embedded sarcasm there's mm -hmm. a playfulness there's a i'm against the man rock and roll plays a huge deal he's a child of the 50s yeah 60s so there's a lot of classic rock and 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 even like doo-wop and and kind of 50s and 60s yeah. rock and roll the stuff of his adolescence and that's just like flavoring so there's a a playfulness in the voice a maybe rebellious but just sort of a rock and roll sense in the voice yeah that uh, it's it's catchy, particularly for you know for young people, for a teenager. You're like, well, you know, here's a here's a man who who sounds like a kid at heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so much of his writing is is like that. I like that phrase, a kid at heart. Now, I mean, when when we think about his book on writing, uh, first of all, I think the, the the first thing I need to say is the second half of the book is uh, just a stellar guide to the the basics. And uh, to the basics of writing, but also uh, what makes writing work, right. what makes writing really not just good, but exceptional, what makes it um, just out of this world. And uh, King, not, not all writers of fiction can actually turn that corner and, and then start being an instructor. He does it. I think he pulls yeah. it off. I, I, I struggle with it. I mean, I teach yeah. a writing course here. It's, it's very, uh, called Writing for the Church. It's very light on mechanics. Because yes. it's hard for me. I, I enjoy driving the car. There's things I know about the car. I want to tell you about the car. I don't, 
know if I can tell you how to fix the car. Yeah. I don't know what's happening when I turn the key, what's going on under that hood. Oh. But King is one of those guys to go, here's what's going on under the hood, guys. Yeah. You need to make sure this piece fits into this piece. Like, I know what a working car looks like, mm. and I can tell you something's wrong with it. Yeah. I don't always have the, you know, the vocab, the mechanics of things. And, and, and he's one of those that can do both. It's, it's exceptional. Yeah, he really is. Uh, the first half of the book is even better, I think, because he does yeah. something that I don't know of any book on writing itself that gets to the mechanics by first being autobiographical. Yeah. And his story is not just any story. Um, maybe we can focus on this for a second, right? Because as he tells you how to write, he tells you how he learned to write. And as he tells you how he learned to write, he inevitably has to tell you about who he is. And so he tells you how, how he met his wife. And he talks about how he, how, which, you know, as a writer, this is always so fascinating, how he made his first break right, as a writer. Right, and, right. you know, back then, you know, what was, uh, you know, today, probably not a lot of money, but back then was like, you know, uh, finding a treasure chest right. uh, with his first contract. Yeah. When you're living in a trailer, yeah. which I think they were at one <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah. And he might have been working as a teacher or something. Yes. But like, I remember him saying what the salary, I mean, they could barely make ends meet. Barely. And he would sell an article and get like 50 bucks or 25 bucks. And it was like, oh, we can actually pay the electricity bill <laughs> this month. Like that's a different level of. It's a different level. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love what it, there's one point where he says um, he started teaching and he's, he, he started picturing himself like 40 years later, still, do, still teaching uh, these kids and, and just being like worn out and like. <laughs> Oh, you know, every every teacher says, "Oh, I'm working on a novel," and he talks about how you know he's good. He by then he's saying this in this like uh, you know smoker's cough voice, <laughs> and and this raggedy old tweed jacket that he's never you know yeah. replaced, and 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 it kind of dawned on him like I've got I, I have to somehow break free of this and actually publish something right. uh, while I still have some life in me. Uh, but but what I I love about this story, and, and again. Those who are suspicious, you know, why would we read, uh, why would we read a non-Christian or why would we read someone who's going to talk about, you know, horror fiction or, or why would we read someone who might even at times be crude and it's going to say things that we don't agree with as Christians. Right. Why would we do that? Well, I think this is one of the, the big reasons why, because he's honest and King in his book on writing has a lot to say about honesty. In fact, I would say it's one of his cardinal rules. He says, if you're going to be a writer, and this is how he judges other writers, he says, if you're not honest, you stink. Yeah. <laughs> you stink as a writer. And, and it comes through because as he starts talking about his own journey and how he makes his, his big break and starts to, to, to kind of rise and, and fame, he's, he is very honest about his drug addiction. Uh, he's very honest about his family life and how, uh, I mean, he talks about, you know, door open, door closed, where he puts his desk, all these details because he, he looks back and he realizes... Uh, my life was a, a real mess at one point. Um, so I guess this brings me to another question for you, Jared. Uh, when we think about writing, and especially with someone like King in mind here, uh, maybe there's some listeners out there who, who are future writers or trying to write themselves. But as you think about your writing, how much of, of writing should at some point come out of this, this honest, personal and sometimes very transparent reality of your own life. Well, in some sense, all of it should. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the best theology, even if you're not writing things using illustrations that come from your personal life, it's driven from conviction, yep. right? I mean, the it, you can be writing true things, but it doesn't sing if you don't actually believe it, mm. right? You're not just regurgitating facts. You're you know, echoing the conviction that you have, the thing yeah. that gets you up in the morning, that, that keeps you going when, when times are tough, when, when suffering hits. That's the best theology. Mm. It may have the same bullet point data as somebody else's, but the best articulation is one that actually comes from belief and from conviction and from someone who's owned that through their own, through their own life. One of the things that, that I tell uh, my writing students um, in, in writing for the church to be a Christian writer, to be a Christian writer, you have to tell the truth. And that's, even if you're writing fiction, you have to tell the truth. And, and that comes out just in the sense of honesty. Would a, in real life, would a character actually do this? Or is it just the, the convenience of your plot that's put them in that position? Does the dialogue ring true? It, it doesn't mean you need to share the nitty-gritty of what real people say all the time. You know, there's a sense of modesty and, and appropriateness and that sort of thing. But if it doesn't ring true, it's just, it's, you know, the imagination. It's the idealized version. And I think that's one of the big problems um, a lot of us have and a lot of people have with, you know, some Christian art, so to speak. Christian movies come immediately to mind, right? Yep. Uh, we're getting better with the technical aspect of those things. But every yeah. time I see a scene or a clip, I just think, People don't talk like that. You cringe. The, right? Yeah, yeah. It you sounds cringe. like the way we wish people would talk, <laughs> but not the way they actually talk or the thing what they'd actually do. I just have to say this right now. And my, <laughs> my wife, if she listens to this, she's going to kill me for saying this because she loves these, but Hallmark movies. Okay, exactly. Well, that's exactly. So take it out of the Christian realm, the Hallmark movies, where it's just a very convenient, there's some misunderstanding yep. that get that gets resolved once the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's comfort food, yep. but we don't watch that and go... That, that reeks of authenticity yeah. and that has a real component to it. And, and, and so the best art has, um, it, it enhances or amplifies reality in some way, but it's also true to life. And it's honest just about people and about the state of the world. Um, and I think the best writing, fiction and nonfiction, has that reflection of truth in it because we are truth people. Yeah. We're people of the truth. Jared, you better be careful here. You're talking about Stephen King, but you're starting to sound like C.S. Lewis. Oh, yeah. So, well, he's maybe <laughs> um, what you mentioned earlier about about stories and about the truth and yeah. the lie. That made me think of uh, Lewis's essay, um, "Myth Become Fact." Yes, uh, which is uh, published in the God in the Dock um, collection, where um, he talks about these. You know, that myth is just sort of the 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 um, the residue of the truth the, you know, the reflection of, of the truth. In Paralandra, for instance, he has the character Ransom say that myth, he discovers what myth is, which is gleams of celestial beauty uh, falling on a jungle of filth and imbecility. So it's like, you know, we know what the truth is as Christians. We, we know the truth, but in the curse and the brokenness of the world, it's that image, the image of God, it, you know, things are broken, they're shattered. So it's like these shattered images. And in these little stories here and there, Stephen King or, or others, yeah. you have a shard. It's not the whole truth, but there's this glimmer, this glimpse that, that points you otherwise. And so Lewis would say that even the myths, um, the reason that they resonate with us and that they endure, you know, uh, for in some cases thousands of years, the reason these things endure is because, not because they're historically true or factually true, but there's a residue of truth in them. Yes. There's a gleam of celestial beauty in them. 
we can hear it and go, there's, there's, there's something there. Mm. It, it's not, it's not the real truth, but it, there's something true in it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, the reason we can say all this, right, theologically is because, well, we've been made in the image of God. Right. And even after the fall, uh, scripture is very clear that this image is still there. It's still there in, in every one of us, even Stephen King. Yeah. Uh, and I think C.S. Lewis would appreciate that. I love this, if I can just paraphrase uh, King for a minute here, because I think this builds off of what C.S. Lewis is getting at. Um, and here he's, he's talking in, you know, on the heels of uh, sharing some of the most personal struggles in his life, uh, his, his drug addiction, for example, uh, which, you know, this is a whole other story. Some of his novels were written while he was on that drug addiction. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Some he doesn't really even remember writing, I yeah, think. Yeah, he's like, I, I don't remember writing that novel, but uh, it sold. So. Right. <laughs> uh, but he says at the end of it, after, he says at one point, and this, goodness, I circled this in the book maybe twice because he says at one point, he, he had to come to, the, to a moment of crisis where he said to himself, um, I am willing to give up writing itself for the sake of overcoming not just this drug addiction, but, but recovering my family. And, and that spoke volumes, right? Uh, that showed me here is a writer who understands the truth of, of what it means to be a human person, mm -hmm. uh, what it means to have human dignity, what it means to, to care for and to love others. And then he says this, and he, he, so he brings us back to the task of writing, and he, and he says, okay, well then, you know, how do we write, and what is our priority, and you want to be a writer? Uh, I want it more than anyone, but, but how, do we, how do we position ourselves? What is our posture? And he says, art is a support system for life. Life is not a support system for art. Now, that shocked me, right, because here's someone who... Uh, here's someone who is extremely successful and he's, he's recognizing in the midst of all his success, actually writing goes down and, and by putting it lower to, to life itself, you actually elevate it in, mm. in a very crucial way. I think that's that honesty there yeah. that uh, you don't always get in other writers, but you get with King. Yeah. It's a hard one experience as well, because yes. essentially what he's saying is that real life is better. And when you're an artist, sometimes it's difficult to believe that yeah. because real life is, I can control what's in my art, yeah. you know, to a large extent. I can't control what's in my real life. And my real life may be very difficult. And his was. Um, and so we think, gosh, I've, I live for my art. You know, art is the, is the transcendence and so on and so forth. And so it's, it's very, you know, astute to say you, you actually fail, even if you're creating great art, yeah. but the, you're hurting the people around you, which he was. Yep. Um, when you're when you're you know losing in the things that ultimately matter most in, in in your relationships, you know spouse and children and so on and so forth, um, then you're really failing mm. because real life is better and so art is a is a support system for the ultimate, which for him is life. Yeah, um, we would say this is almost a language of idolatry. Wouldn't I mean he wouldn't say that, but um, but but it's it's very similar that art exists as a means of adorning what is primary, which is the glory of Jesus Christ, art cannot replace that. No, our work cannot replace that. Our ministry cannot replace that. You know, uh, ministry is a support system for life, yes. not the other way around. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. 
Now, this this brings us to, and maybe this is a good transition for us, right? Because we do want to get to you know some of those novels uh, <laughs> right. that that we've read and uh, talk about, you know, especially from our our theological lens, right? It, I, I read a Stephen King novel, and uh, I'm circling things that probably 99% of readers don't care about. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, it, it, it's, it's often things that trigger a certain theological interest for me. Uh, but maybe this is a good transition point because as in his book on writing, as is towards the beginning, uh, he is telling the story about how he met his wife. Uh, it's, it's just a lovely story. And uh, you can really feel... Um, I mean, they've been married for so long now, but you can start to to really sense in in this book, um, just even that early uh, just love they have for for each other in the midst of some of those really difficult trials, being being broke and and trying to make it as a writer. But as he's describing um, his wife and himself, he says at one point, uh, "While I believe in God." I have no use for organized religion. Now, you have to understand the context here. This is coming out of uh, him describing his own wife's background and, um, you know, what she likes and doesn't like about um, even some of her her Catholic upbringing, that sort of thing. But um, this statement is is one that stuck out to me. And he moves on from there. He doesn't dwell on it. But I thought, now this is fascinating because here is a writer who says he does believe in God. Uh, and at the same time, he at the at the very same time, he does have uh, a real suspicion uh, towards. I mean, I think we could even put it stronger than that. He says, "I have no use. I have yeah. no use for organized religion." And I think we actually see this come out in his books constantly. We do constantly, yeah. yeah, right, constantly. Now, here's the thing. Here's here's where I think we got. We have to just go right. We might assume, and maybe this is what our listeners might assume, they might assume, okay, well, that can only come out in a very negative way. And granted, it, it often sometimes does. I mean, we'll talk in a minute about his book, Carrie. And I mean, th- I think there's a real example where you see it right. come yeah. out. Yeah. But um, I th- it can it also come out in a, a very, I mean, at most a very positive way or perhaps even... Uh, in a very curious way that actually opens the door to, okay, he has this belief in God. How does the supernatural actually influence the way he writes about reality itself, including some of the harshest parts of our reality? Yeah. In, in some ways, King is just sort of the, um, I don't know, not, you know, prototypical is not the word, but, and, and stereotypical isn't the word either, but emblematic of his generation in particular, his region, he's a New Englander, so growing yep. up in Maine, uh, Methodist upbringing, as far as we can tell, not necessarily nominal, you know, church-going Methodist, but he says when he was 18, he, le- he left because he, because he had no use, you know, for organized religion. Um, in, in, in a way that, like, you know, Flannery O'Connor's South is sort of a Christ-haunted South, uh, King's New England or his Maine and even his fictional towns are kind of God-haunted towns. And he has the kind of, so I'm, I, you know, when I was pastoring in Vermont, you, you'd meet countless folks who hadn't been in church for you know, 40 years or whatever. And they would say, I'm spiritual. Well, I'm not religious. Mm. 
And most of them, when they, when they say that, what they mean is, I literally don't even think about anything spiritual until someone like you asked me about it. <laughs> but some of them, that's usually what they mean. Like I literally don't even think about anything spiritual until a pastor asked me about my about my soul. Uh, but 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 a fair number of them have a kind of sentimental spirituality yeah. that has its roots in. Um, well, for some, you know, where I was the most recent, uh, when Vermont was religious, the last time it was dominated by religion, it, it was Roman Catholic. Mm. Um, of course, New England in general was the hotbed historically of the, pro, you know, of, of the Great Awakening, yep. um, you know, new, new divinity and so on and so forth. Um, so it would have been Protestant at one point, then Catholic, then just sort of burnt over kind of um, district. But I think King kind of carries that around a sentimental spirituality. I um, think he, I, I don't know if he would say I'm spiritual, not religious, but that's the vibe I get. Uh, you know, I don't know how old he is now, but 70 year old man, whatever, maybe a little older of his generation who, you know, fight the man, but he has this kind of sentimentality for, you know, good. And, you know, yeah, there's, there's a right and wrong there. You know, he's uh, a child of the sixties. So yeah. justice and peace and those sorts of virtues which create a kind of spirituality for him where he has no use for organized religion, but, uh, you know, he believes there's a God because there's a sentimentality that connects mm. him mm. To, to a sense of God. And, and he believes that there's such a thing as evil because his sentimentality, you know, sentimentality connects him to those sort of archetypes and the thing. And I think, it, you know, if when we talk about New England, right, um, they, I think to their credit, they have a very honest uh a very transparent yes understanding of as they'll, a culture they'll of, shoot you straight th that's exactly right <laughs> i mean right. They, to, if you were to walk in there and say something like you know ah oh, there's no such thing as evil and there's you know nothing uh <laughs> yeah yeah they're, they're gonna they're gonna have a word with you now when we talk about king right i mean most most people when they hear the the name stephen king they think of you know some of his his big sellers right you know it uh, the Shining, uh, Pet Cemetery, yeah. uh, which is uh, you know a, another one that is is just uh, classic in a sense. Uh, others though, like The Outsider or Salem's Lot. Uh, my wife recently read that one, and, yeah. and uh, I said, you know, how, what do you think of it? And she said, I couldn't put it down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Shawshank Redemption. I mean, some of these that we're even mentioning, and there's others, uh, have become major. Motion yeah. pictures. I think Shawshank, the Shawshank Redemption, which was originally a novella. Yes. In a collection. I think it was in Four Seasons. That's right. Yeah. yeah it was called Rita Hayworth. The, the full title was Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, or Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. Mm -hmm. Shortened to Shawshank Redemption. It's the highest rated movie, I think, on IMDb or maybe Rotten Tomatoes by audiences. So, in other words, it's like the number one favorite movie of the average Joe. Yeah is Shawshank Redemption. And that was a Stephen King story. It's not a horror story, but it's a Stephen King story. Morgan Freeman, <laughs> Tim Robbins. I mean, right. this is, uh, they call it a, a modern classic. Yeah. Nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It, it, this reminds me, you know, I, I read um, over the, uh, the winter break, it was so cold, that I picked up Misery. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, and I couldn't help, there was one point where... Um, uh, who is it? Paul Sheldon, right? The the uh, the the writer. This is like every writer's worst yeah. nightmare. Right? That's another thing King does, by the way. Just to decide, he has a lot of characters who are writers. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He does, and you start to notice when he does that. 
some of himself starts mm-hmm. to come out. Right. And he, he has this one moment where Paul Sheldon, you know, poor Paul, he's, uh, you know, at the mercy of Annie, Annie Wilkes. And um, he's he's just thinking about his life. And and he's also starting to think about all the critics he has. Mm. And, and he says at one point that they, they think he's just a hack. And, <laughs> right. And he's starting to think, is this, is this about Paul, or or maybe this is actually Stephen King well, that's coming right. through. I mean, the because uh, this is yeah because the woman who's taking him hostage is a fan. Oh, his number one. She's fan. a deranged fan, <laughs> and uh, she's forcing him. Right, it's been a while since I read it. Yeah. She's forcing him yeah. to write. She didn't like the last book because he killed. Maybe he killed. He a killed character off, off not just the main character, but the whole series. Okay, so the series is done, and yep. she's angry. So she she takes him hostage. Yep. and forces him to write a new a new book, and so and for King. Who has deranged fan? I mean, there's stories of people trying to break into his it's, house. You know, horror fans in particular probably are not the entirely stable people. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are, there are weirdo except you and I. Except I mean, for except, us. Except for us. There are weirdo people out there who are drawn to this genre. Yeah. And then if you become you know deranged in some yeah. way and you identify with this person, this is him sort of like, what if someone what if? were to get through that gate and it's break possible, into my house, right? And and, and yeah. cut off my leg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But yeah. the reason I mention it is because um, if I don't know if Stephen King really is talking through, you know, Paul there, the writer, um, he's not he's not. Some people will say that, oh, he's just a popular writer. He's just he's just a hack, so to speak. Yeah. I, I don't think they're right about that be- because of books like uh, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> another one to be a similar example uh, 20 years earlier. Stand by me. Stand by me. Which was in that same collection, yes. I think, and was originally titled The Body. So it sounds like a horror. I think it's yeah. called The Body. Yeah. It sounds like a horror story, <laughs> but it's not. It's well, I mean, there's the the rumor that there's a dead body. Yeah. And these four boys go on this journey, basically. They go on a a, a quest. Yeah. And they're gonna go see this dead body because it's something that, you know, young boys may be interested in seeing. Of course. But it's really about them and about adolescence oh. and about growing up and the different homes they come from and that was made into the movie Stand By Me, which is considered a modern classic as well. Not a horror story, yeah. a coming of age, you know, kind of story. He, he's 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 a, a very versatile, very writer, versatile, actually. very versatile. Now, now let's let's talk about uh, a couple of examples here because I know we all have our favorites, and I the list I went through those are just some of you know the major bestsellers that we all are familiar with. Yeah. But uh, in order to talk about maybe some of your fa- favorites, Jared, as well as the ways that these novels uh, bring to the surface how King, or, or for that matter, um, a, a fiction writer might try to engage with suffering, evil in our world, what it means to be human, whether there's something supernatural, and if so, what, is, what does that mean for our soul? All, all of these, the biggest questions we ask about life. Yeah. Uh, well, as he does that, different novels come to mind. So let me just mention a few of them here, and, and we could. I want to give you the chance, Jared, to to really um, give some of your own reflections and reactions to these. Uh, number one, desperation. Okay, l- l- can we reverse and go back to Carrie? Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I think that was his first novel. I do want to talk Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Let's let's go back to Carrie for a minute. Yeah, because I think that. So what you have in Carrie, which I think was his first novel. Um, and you were sharing, maybe you can share, I, I wasn't aware of this, the backstory. What was the inspiration behind Carrie? What? Yeah, and I don't know that this is the case with 
all of his novels because he often talks yeah. about how he forms a novel with the question, what if? Right, right. So some, sometimes it's not this personal, but this one was. Okay. And he talks about how uh, he knew uh, and, and it was very familiar with going back to his days in school uh, with several different families, two girls in particular. And he, he tells the, the real story about uh, how, uh, well, he, he calls one of the girls Sandra. Um, and how Sandra and her mother live in a, a trailer home and he goes to visit her and he, well, I'll just read it here. He says, dominating the trailer's living room was a nearly life-size crucified Jesus. Uh, eyes turned up, mouth turned down, blood dribbling from beneath the crown of thorns on his head. He was naked except for a rag twisted around his hips and loins above this, uh, were the hollowed belly and, and juddering ribs of a, a concentration camp inmate, it occurred to me that Sandra had grown up beneath the agon, uh, agonized gaze of this dying God, and doing so had undoubtedly played a part in making her what she was when I knew her back then, he's referring to, a timid and homely outcast. And that's a big thing theme yeah. for him, right? Outcast who went scuttling through the halls of Lisbon High like a frightened mouse. And, and then he goes on to say how he, he walks in, he's staring at this crucifixion, and uh, Sandra's mother says, as she's watching him, right, that's Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Have you been saved, Steve? And he says, I hastened to, to tell her I was saved as saved could be. <laughs> Although I didn't think... I'm a Methodist. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Although I didn't think you could ever be good enough to have that version of Jesus intervene on your behalf. The pain had driven him out of his mind. You could see it on his face. If that guy came back, he probably wouldn't be in a saving mood. Mm. So there's a lot... Yeah. More in the context here about um, another girl that he meets, and to be very honest with you, I mean, he go. You can read about your, you, you know, our listeners can read about it. He goes on to say, it's two very sad endings to to these girls and their lives, as they come out of this just beaten context, um, uh, brutally uh, bullied in school, right, and then going home to a very rough environment, but at the same time having over them this hanging dying God, as he, as he refers to. So it's out of this context that he comes up yeah. with this idea. I mean, for that's the book. Carrie. Yes. Carrie is an outcast. She, she comes from uh, um, a broken home. Her mother is hyper-religious. In, in King's economy of, of religion, she's flaming fundamentalist, hyper, but almost, almost a Pentecostal as well. I, I, I don't think King quite gets the categories. So he very often mixes things where you would think, well, that's more of this and that's they, those worlds don't usually meet, but in his mind, it's all the same. So he kind of lumps it all together. So she's kind of this hyper fundamentalist slash Pentecostal, you know, hyper charismatic. She's what we would call judgmental, extremely. legalistic, extremely. Yeah, not just someone who's a little strict. She's all. She's kind of crazy, actually. Yes. Uh, and abusive. Major guilt trips. Right. On on Carrie. And so and Carrie is homely. She's plain. Yeah. She's shy. And she's bullied at school as well as an outcast. So you have that, you know, kind of picture there. And it, and it picks up not just the theme of the outcast or the, the timid outsider or that sort of thing, but it, it picks up 
um, the the previous thing we talked about, King's concern for the truth or things be honest or true. I think his major beef with organized religion, so to speak, isn't necessarily the religion. I don't think he's anti-Christianity. Mm. He's anti-hypocrisy. Yes. And for, in his mind, they, it, it's like he, he, he's never seen them separated or he just hasn't been honest with himself. But his experience is the people that I know that claim to speak for God, I see their everyday life and they're abusive, they're harmful, they're liars, they're adulterous. Which is this, and, and so that sets from this first novel, it really sets a recurring theme. Mm. The ministers that show up, and if he ever has a minister character, by and large, they're some sort of creep. Yes, they're if they're not outright villainous, they're hypocrites of some kind, and 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 part of that is I think King's anti-establishment, you know, youth coming because he doesn't like the government either. You know, he's yeah. he's he's a hippie, <laughs> so anything organized, if it's the man, he's against it, right? Yeah. So there's that, but I think there's also just this, um, you know, his his sense of of hypocrisy and yeah. organized religion yeah. kind of diluting. Um, I I don't think I and and you know we as we continue to talk we can bring up some evidence of this. I, he's I don't think he's anti Christianity. I don't think so either. Right. I, I, he's he's anti organization. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So I could see how some Christians out there would confuse the two, um, but in terms of I mean, many of the themes of Christianity itself are portrayed very favorably by right. him, right? Whether whether he always intends to or not. I mean, you think about Carrie. For, let's just take an example here, right? Um, we don't have to tell the whole story, but she has this um, supernatural uh, power. I think we could call it that, um, and it could even be potentially destructive. Right. Right. I mean, it, it can, it's not, we're not, we're not talking here about just merely changing another person's behavior or bringing them to their, ne- their knees. We're talking about br- the, the ability potentially to bring down, you know, an, an entire building. Right. <laughs> this, this is the type of power we are, we're, we're referring to. And, uh, you know, I don't want to give away the whole story, but uh, towards the end, you know, th- this is the, the, the classic, you know, prom scene and, and, and all this. Uh, there is this sense in which all of the abuse she's she's taken on her shoulders, both at home with the guilt and and just the the sick ways that that her mother uh, punishes her uh, in the name of Jesus. And then at school, in which she's the outcast, she's the ugly one. she's the she's the one that uh, is is the you know the the filth of of society, the, the, you know, the picture of of not cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all of a sudden when her moment comes and she almost, uh, outside of herself, right? I mean, it's, it's almost uncontrollable. The power just is unleashed and it wreaks havoc on all of those who inflicted pain on her. There is a sense at the end what is, you know, besides what's right or wrong in terms of, you know, the individuals in the story, there is a sense in the end where you start to feel like this is actually, this has a lot to do with justice. Yeah, and do you remember the decisive moment? W- 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 the moment in which she unleashes her her power is when they dump the pig's blood yes. onto her, and it's I spoiler think spoiler alert. I, well, I mean <laughs> it's, it's okay. been it's been out a long time, so if you haven't, um, I I think whether consciously or unconsciously, I think I think consciously, I think he's smart enough to to know what he's doing. Yeah, this is a kind of because the crucifixion thing plays such a big deal through the whole book, the image of it in the house. 
this is a kind of crucifixion scene. She's covered in blood. She's standing in front and above everyone on that stage. Yeah. They, they've they faked that she's the winner of the prom, or, or she's the winner, but it's a joke that it's, she's the the prom queen. It's a massive. They're cruel. all making fun of her, and they're all laughing and they're jeering, they're taunting. What does this remind you of? Someone who's paraded, and they're meaning it for evil, and they're jeering and they're taunting and they're covered in blood, and yet in the same moment, she is executing yes. vengeance through this moment on those who are against her, who are who, who are evil. Um, it's, I think it's in his, you know, it doesn't neatly line up, No, but for King, this is that victory in the moment of death, victory in the moment of blood crucifixion type scene where we know the reality is at where they thought they had defeated Christ. He was actually putting the, uh, forces of evil to open shame, triumphing over them in his cross. Right. It's a, it's a very similar kind of thing. It's, it's, it can't, it is so vivid. Yeah. And. In, in one sense, in a, in a very healthy sense, repulsive, that it, it strikes such a chord where you, you start, you re, you're reading this and you just think, how could this, how could this be accidental, right? This, right. Is, yeah. <laughs> this is too big of a coincidence. Um, it, it, so Carrie, yeah. of course, I mean, this is, I think, one of the, the, the most striking uh, books in which you you have so many of these themes that are so precious to us in Christianity come out in a very real way that that all of us, anyone who's been to high school, <laughs> can, <laughs> right. can certainly resonate with. Um, but it's not just Carrie, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, desperation and revival. Here okay. are two. Right. Here are two novels where. Uh, in in totally different ways, right? If Carrie is is a very you know here is judgment literally coming down from the rafters, right, right. Here with desperation revival, we are we enter a different type of world. Yeah. Well, what's interesting and in, in, so desperation to me stood out when you when you asked about doing this. It's the one that kind of left at the top. It's not one of his better known yeah. novels. Came out probably twenty some years ago. Uh, he released it in a companion novel. He wrote, so you talk about him being prolific. He released these two like 600-page novels at the same time, uh, Desperation by Stephen King, The Regulators by Richard Bachman. <laughs> he wrote that under his, his pseudonym, which by then we all knew who, Rich, you know, who that was him. They had similar covers. They take place in sort of parallel universes, similar. They're like mirror images of each other. I much prefer Desperation, despite the fact that Desperation is one of his also, I, I don't want to say goriest, but the evil is heavy in the mm. book. It has one of the most evil kind of premises. I mean, he's always dealing with good and evil, but it just is, it's a horrific premise. The, the plot is there's a town in Nevada, a little, almost a ghost town, desperation. And it begins with this family who's driving through this desolate highway. There's, there's no place to stop. There's no gas station. And the sheriff pulls them over. A cop pulls them over. They're in the middle of nowhere, nothing around, no witnesses. The cop comes up and there's just something off about him. Yeah. And he eventually takes them captive takes them back to desperation and locks them up. And it's, it's, it's like a ghost town. And what they discover is this guy's been doing, and there's no recourse because they're in the middle of nowhere. And this is pre-cell phone, of course, and all, <laughs> you know, all those sorts of things. And the, the plot, of course, expands to the reality is um, that the cop has been uh, possessed by, a de- by this demon, mm. which in the book is uh, TAK, T-A-K. And the demon needs a different host. There's all sorts of elements to it. But the reason it stands out for me, because he's dealt with, these kinds of things, spirits and those sorts of things before. Um, I should also note one thing that King does, which is notable, because it's not true in a lot of horror stories. Um, even if you think he's sort of, 
glorifying evil or violence, whatever. There, it's it's always clear that evil is evil. Yes, that it's not good. That's right. He doesn't. He he may be depicting things at varying levels of of explicitness. Um, I don't think he's that gory, honestly. Um, His move the the movies are the gory movies end up yes. being, but gory. the books are really aren't. They're, they're not more, surprising. They're more scary. They're more sort of terrifying yeah. in that sense. They're not really gory, so they're not explicit in that sense. But it's he's never the bad guy's never the good guy. Yeah. The, the 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 evil is evil, and we're gonna try to defeat that evil. There's never an evil, you know. And if evil ever even looks to triumph, it's not depicted as a good thing. So he doesn't have an upside down view of of, of morality or spirituality yeah. here in that in, in that sense. But anyway, so you you have evil which he's dealt with. But what I've, I had not seen him do up to this point was have an ex, uh, uh, an explicitly Christian character, uh, basically almost e- like e- an evangelical character who was positive. Mm. He's had he's toyed with it before. So, but most of the explicitly Christian or even evangelical characters are villains, hypocrites creeps, louts of some kind. When he has positive characters like Mother Abigail in The Stand or, um, you know, John Coffey in, in The Green Mile, yep. those characters are more the sentimental religion type. They're yes. Christ figures, so to speak, but they're not Christians. Yeah. They're, you know, new agey even. Mother Abigail's even more kind of a, a new agey, you know, person. But it's more of his sentimental thing coming through. Here you have this little boy, David Carver, who against his parents' wishes, his parents think it's weird, that um, he's become a Christian yeah. and he's praying constantly and reading his Bible. And he's almost an outcast from his family because his parents are kind of weirded out by it. And, um, but he prayed. So this, you know, part of the backstory is he prayed for a, a classmate of his, I think it is, who was sick or dying and the classmate was healed, mm. um, you know, didn't die or whatever. And the little boy goes, this is evidence. So he's, he's prayer. So the whole time they're, they're kidnapped and there's other people who are kidnapped, of course. And there's, these really horrifying things taking place um, from this demonic presence. He's continually like, no, God has a plan. God's the, and it's this tension. The, the theme that King is playing with is, is this just a sentimental thing, right? Is, he, is this little boy just deluding himself? Because the reality is things do not look good, and he's holding on to this. And, and, and people are saying this to him, yeah. you, you know, to the boy in the story. Like, why are you, this, like, God's not there. And there's even a line in the in the where I think the sheriff says, um, "There's no God in desperation." Mm. <laughs> like you can believe all that stuff out there, but once you're here, like he's he literally says, "There's no God in desperation." And the little boy continues to pray. Well, you know, again, I'm not trying to spoil the whole thing, but because some horrific things happen, but in the end, it becomes this uh, weird meditation on um, it's it's theodicy. Where's a good God when there is suffering? And in the end, the boy convinces one of the not his father, but one of the other figures, um, that there is a God. And in fact, the man in, in eventually sort of even teaches the boy a lesson, and he has this folded up piece of paper in his pocket at the end of the story, the, the little boy does, and he pulls it out and he opens it up. And, it, um, and Because they're looking for answers. What's the answer to yeah. this? And he opens it up, and the answer is First John 4, 8, God is love. And that's sort of King's, you know, he's not a theologian. He's not even a Christian, right? <laughs> but that's King, um, in, in my mind, giving us something, you know, um, that God is love, and you can trust him even when there is suffering, and that, that God cares for you even when horrible things are happening to you. And he's affirming. Yeah. I don't know if he believes this, but um, in, the, 
in the story, in the universe of the story, it's affirmed as a true message. Mm. The kid is not a fool for believing this stuff. Um, he may not have all the answers, and that's part of the, you know, the mystery of the thing. But in the end, the, the boy is vindicated for mm. his belief. And I just thought, I've never seen that in a King story at all. No. A good no. character. I mean, part of the way he gets away with it, I guess, is because it's a little boy. Yeah. And a little boy's faith isn't corrupted by hypocrisy and those yeah. sorts of things. It's a naive faith. Well, I, I was going to say, for King, uh, children and youth actually have a certain yes. sacred place. Yes. Um, it, many of his other books bring this out as well. And, I mean, you think of um, his story, The Outsider. Um, or, or even Pet Cemetery. I mean, in so many of these stories, children play a prominent role. And not always, not always, but often uh, King communicates that the, the voice of the child bears more truth to it yeah. than all of these adults who think they have life all figured out. Yeah, you sell out. I mean, I think that's his anti-establishment. Yes, coming through, yes. And, yeah. and then <laughs> coupled with that is, is some of the hypocrisy, yeah. right? Is they're hypocrites. Right. Right. So the romanticization of, yeah. of adolescence. Adolescence, yeah. Um, and, but again, he, you know, a child of the 50s, you know, you know, 50s and 60s, so his characters that sort of take place in that time period, they feel authentic. Mm. They they sound real because yeah. that's that's who he was. They you know came out of real life. So uh, desperation, I, and and I think you're right to point our listeners in this direction because this is a very unique case. Uh, but but what about revival? Yeah, so revival is one of his more recent novels. I think it just it uh, in the last five years, certainly in the last ten years. But it's a more recent novel. It's probably the newest one of his I've read, and um, it's almost the flip side. Um, I don't know if King is meaning this, but the main character, uh, well, not the main character, but one of the main characters is a, a Methodist minister who comes to town. His name is Charles Jacobs, I believe. Um, and he becomes the new minister in town. And the main character is a part of a family that's a church-going Methodist family, where we heard that before. I think this is yeah. a part of you know, <laughs> King's own background. Um, and in this small town, and they go to church, and he's, a fa- he's, he's captivating, he's compelling, he's young. He starts leading the youth group. And in the youth group, they're doing science experiments, and playing <laughs> games. And I mean, I'm having flashbacks of like to my own sort of like, like you got to keep them entertained. And yeah. we all, we always liked it when the youth pastor preached on, you know, because you, you it would be compelling, you know, yeah. it, would be, it would be funny at least. Or yeah. something. And that's who this guy is. He's the cool guy. He's the minister who wears jeans. Yeah. He's the minister who has a, uh, a pretty young wife. You know, the, yeah. all, all the young boys are infatuated with his wife because she's so beautiful and they have two little kids, and all the girls love the two little kids. They play with the kids and want to babysit all the kids. It, it's just such a, a familiar picture. Yeah. But what happens is this tragedy strikes, and because it's a newer novel, I won't give everything away, but a tragedy strikes, which causes the minister to get up, and they all remember this. This is like what haunts the novel for the rest of the story as these characters age. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the main character is, is just a little boy when, when, uh, when the story begins and when this event happens, but he goes all the way through adulthood through the whole story. And he, what he remembers is this, the Sunday the minister got up and preached the sermon in which he basically renounced his faith, oh. that he's abandoning it all. He doesn't believe it anymore. He preached the, I no longer believe. And King traces the impact of that sermon on the church and on the town itself to say, when you have someone who's just so riveting, I think there's lessons uh, for us there and just in terms of celebrity culture. I mean, this, you know, he's not a celebrity, but in that context, when everything is on this guy's voice, if he fa- even if he's not saying he doesn't believe, but if he falls, disqualifies himself morally, and you see the whole thing crumble, 
we see this story play out in evangelicalism over and over again. And that's what happens. And it begins to affect the faith of others. Yeah. So King knows, like, if I'm looking to this guy as my compelling reason to be a believer, and then he comes back and says, I don't even believe this stuff anymore. Now you're thinking, well, do I really believe this? And it yeah. just sends these people spiraling. Yeah. But it's um it's a it's a piece of what they call cosmic horror. Yeah. As the book develops, and it's a very slow burn. So nothing supernatural, so to speak, really happens until almost two-thirds of the way through the thing. You're just following this story. Mm. And and it's a very compelling story. And the whole time I read it, I'm going, I thought this I thought there was something scary. Like I thought this was you a, keep waiting a supernatural. For it. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting for like <laughs> the evil, you know, spirit to show up or something. And I read it, and it's just you're following this guy growing up and the jobs he's doing and all these things. But it's the impact of what this guy renouncing his faith has done. But it's a, almost a, you know, a Lovecraft type story in that um, I think what King is doing, and again, I won't spell the whole plot, but becoming our own gods, what this mm. minister essentially becomes is someone who wants to put himself on the throne of his life yeah. and, and even control creation. This is where some of the supernatural stuff starts to come about. Right. He becomes the villain because he's trying to look into the other world. He's trying to, um, the tragedy is he, he's lost someone and he wants to see them again, visit them again. Yeah. So you're almost even dealing with, I don't know if King would be aware of this, but we have in the scriptures clear forbidding of divination and, and you know, seance type, you know, of, mm. of trying to talk to the dead. And King is clearly um, showing that as you don't want to mess with that. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's no Ouija board in the in the in the novel that I remember, but it's like King is saying, "Don't play with that. Yeah, it's going to open something that you don't want to mess with," which is a very Christian message. Yes, you know? yes. <laughs> um, and that's exactly what happens. The guy he 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 aspires to something that's too big for him. He wants to put himself in the place of God, control the elements of nature. I mean, he really is this un, unhinged, and he opens up a door that he should not open up. Now, Jared, no let, 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 let me, be, the, all, all three of these examples, right? Carry, Desperation, Revival. I mean, there's others we could mention, right? Stand. Yeah. Um, Green Mile. I mean, there, there's, there's other examples, of course. Um, if, if maybe, just maybe, <laughs> we've got, got listeners and, and, you know, some of them are, pastors, others are students, some of them are churchgoers, um, some of them may be thinking, hey, I want to write books like Jared Wilson someday. And then they, they come across this podcast and they, they think, <laughs> oh my goodness, uh, Stephen King. These degenerates. What are, yeah. <laughs> who are these guys? <laughs> uh, did Jared Wilson just, just say, uh, you know, uh, horror fiction and, and cosmic... Uh, <laughs> you know, cosmic destruction and I, I, and, and their world's just like falling apart. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, all the categories they thought that were there just are starting to, to just fall to the ground. Um, let's, let's pick up some of those categories just in our, you know, closing minutes here. And, uh, I want to give you the chance to just speak to this because, um, you know, maybe they're thinking, okay, okay. I've listened. Um, I think I'm tracking there, there is, there actually is something that something quite crucial that as Christians, we need to learn, not just, it's not even really about Stephen King, is it? I mean, it's really, it's, it's about, can we actually learn from, uh, from those who are discovering truth, wherever it be in a way that makes us think about uh, the biggest questions of life in a way that's true and honest and real. So 
maybe they're starting to to say, okay, I, I maybe see, but I'm I'm just not, I'm still not sure. Yeah. What what would you say to them? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't say that king is for everybody. And there's there's different sensibilities, different sensitivities, um, and just interests in different kinds of genres as well. So I'm certainly not saying you know that everyone what you must read horror fiction. I don't even read horror fiction beyond outside of King. I don't, I don't yeah. know if you do as well, but like I used to think I liked fantasy literature and yeah. it turned out I really just liked <laughs> Narnia and Middle Earth. I, yeah. I, I like Tolkien and Lewis yeah. and I haven't really liked anything outside of that. So I don't really like fantasy. I don't know that I really like horror. I like yeah. Stephen King. Yeah. I've tried different things, even things he's recommended Yeah, where, and I say, well, if King likes it, maybe it's in it. And I'm like, nah, just, doesn't it just work. doesn't do it for me. I like, I like King's writing. So the first thing I would say is it's not for everybody, and 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 I hope nobody hears this as just a, a full-on endorsement of everybody reading anything that he's ever written. But what I would say is um, a couple things. Number one, to be conversant with the culture means at least having some uh, awareness or familiarity. It doesn't mean immersing yourself. It doesn't mean obsessing. It doesn't mean opening yourself up to anything uh, indiscriminately that might be out in the culture. But it, But he is probably the most read author of the last 20, 30 years or more. Um, you know, the most read best-selling author, you know, for sure. And having some conversant knowledge of him could be helpful um, just in being able to navigate life with unbelievers who would be familiar with his, not just his writing, but the kind of spirituality that is there as well. But I think fiction in general, this isn't really even about King or about the genre. Um, fiction in general, it just, it, it um, especially for ministry leaders who don't often read, you know, their lay people, you know, they're, Congregants read fiction more than they do, typically, but a lot of Christians don't read fiction um, anyway, but ministry leaders in particular. It works different parts of your brain. Yes. I think it can make you a better preacher. Yes. Because you begin to, without even knowing, you're being shaped in, this, in the form of narrative, mm. the way story is, so your illustrations get better. Um, not because you're directly drawing them from the things you're reading, but just your sense of story and your sense of being able to put a narrative arc, even to the sermon itself, mm. I think. Of, of, of rising action, climax, falling action, the way you construct your sermon. Like these are things I talk about with my ministry students all the time, is having an arc to your sermon points, to the narrative of the sermon. Fiction helps you with that. It just shapes yeah. you as you read it to have that. Um, you do get, I, I think you can be formed in a kind of empathy because you see the in, internal lives of people who aren't like you, yep. people in different cultures, people from different uh, walks of life. You're exposed. Maybe to, you know if you read historical fiction, you're um, exposed to points in history that you may not be, but it just it works different muscles. I think it makes you a more well-rounded person, a more empathetic person, and I think a more compelling communicator uh, very often as well. And, I mean, Jared, you're a writer yourself. Yeah. Um, would you say? Would you go so far to say it makes you a better writer? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because the way um, novelists and fiction writers in general put words together is typically more poetic more artful than, not always, but generally speaking, more artful than nonfiction writers put their words together. So it can make you a better nonfiction writer um, and, and fiction writer too, but it, you know, just the way that impacts your understanding of language and, and, and your sensibility for language and your ability to think musically in terms mm. of um, you know, how to put words together. Like it's not just any old word will do. Yeah. The good writer, the novelist, the good novelist, is selecting um, what Gustave Flaubert called le mot ju, right? The 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 exact right word, mm. which is why it, well, you know, he labored over one paragraph for three days or something. But <laughs> I don't think we need to be that like that. But in his mind, it's like, no, there's the word. I know I can use a word, but there's the word. 
it just can make you a more sort of circumspect and an artful sort of communicator. And and I would, you know, from my side of the table, I, I would say, I would just add, I think it can even make you a better theologian. Mm, okay. Right? Expand um, on that. Well, I mean, you were talking a minute ago about how it makes you a better preacher. And I, I actually really agree with that. In yeah. fact, one of the things, what, what I'm always asked, you know, by pastors or seminary students going in the church, you know, how can I become a better preacher? Uh, one of the first things I say is, do you read fiction? Read fiction, wow. Because, I mean, there's the practical aspect, right, of are you able to tell a story? Uh, well, that's in, in one sense, that's preaching. You're, you're telling a story. It has to have the arc. Yeah. It has to have that, that climax. It has to have a destination. Um, but in another sense, also, it, fiction, it brings you, sometimes without realizing it, it brings you into contact with the most uh, essential and relevant and biggest questions about life. Mm. And if that doesn't, if that doesn't relate to the curiosity of a theologian, I don't know what will. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, just practically, I think a lot of the things you've said apply as well, right? Um, you know, I'll be the first to say it, but theologians don't always write in a way <laughs> that, <laughs> I mean, it can be dry. Yeah, right. And, you know, some of that's just the craft itself. It's, it's almost inevitable because you have to be very technical, technical. And, and precise and that sort of thing. And so we don't want to abandon that. But but we could be helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think the more, the more fiction I read, I can see my own writing getting better. But more to the point, I, my theological thought process, it, it has an imagination. It, it doesn't just settle for, well, let's just kind of repeat and regurgitate the same old questions and answers. It starts to, a, to ask uh, questions that are not being asked and to think about, well, could the Bible address those? Or, or how, how, might, how, how might we speak to those issues uh, that could have consequences for a whole range of, of challenges we face today. So all that to say, um, you know, as we bring this to a close, I, I think it's not just relevant to, you know, being a Christian. It's not just relevant to pastoral ministry. It's relevant to theology, and it's also relevant to being a writer. And I would say to, to those out there listening who are, who are thinking, well, I'm not a pastor, you know, I'm not a writer, I'm not a theologian. Uh, I would say, it's also relevant to understanding life yeah. just as a person. And, you know, you were talking a minute ago about empathy. I don't think we can, we can ignore that. Uh, and that's where, you know, just to circle back around to where we started, that's where we began to say, well, is there truth in the lie? And if so, uh, how, do, how does it bring us into contact with real life uh, under, you know, under the, the umbrella of, 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 God himself in a way that actually forces us to be honest, mm. you know, not in the hallmark, <laughs> right, right, right. but actually honest about who are we really and, and where are we headed? And uh, what does all of this mean in light of, of this great God that we worship? Yeah. Well, that finishes our podcast with Jared Wilson uh, talking about, believe it or not, Stephen King out of all people. <laughs> Uh, but I think I, I, I hope, think we pulled it off. I, I hope I hope we have. I hope we have, and we might even live to, to tell the tale. Uh, I would just encourage, encourage our listeners: Hey, pick up one of Jared's books. Uh, Love Me Anyway is one of his new ones that's out. But I would also encourage you to pick up some of his novels, uh, Echo Island, for example. I think that you will really enjoy Jared's writing. Uh, find him insightful, profound, but also also you know leading you by the hand as he addresses. Uh, everything from pastoral ministry to the Christian life. Now you can fill up on theology each day 
by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.